if it's your idea, you have to be willing to be the mother, father, sister, brother of that idea. Because if you aren't, others won't join you. You really, really have to be committed to bringing your idea forward into reality. That's, that's your job. Hi, my name is Ellie Cody, and this is Manhattan Sideways. On this episode, recorded in January of 2019, we spoke with Ken Wampler, founder of Alpha Workshops. Here's what Betsy Bober-Pallaby, founder of Manhattan Sideways, had to say about this business. After completing walking 155 streets, there is an endless list of amazing nonprofit organizations started by people who had a vision, had a passion, but one of the ones that resonated with me, perhaps more than any other, was Ken and Alpha Workshops. And I truly hope that people will feel the same way when they listen to his story and what he created 20 plus years later. Back in the early 1990s, Ken recognized the vulnerability of HIV positive men and women and the LGBTQ community as a whole and wanted to establish a community for them to be in and a place for them to go to feel safe and also to take care of them and to give them a craft. And all these years later, he built something magnificent and I'm so proud to call him a friend. Hi, Ken. Thanks Hi. for being here today. Would you mind introducing yourself and telling me the name of your nonprofit? Sure. My name is Ken Wampler, and the nonprofit is called the Alpha Workshops. All right. And you opened Alpha in 1995, correct? Right, right. So can you tell me about the mission? The mission. I'll tell you about the mission and history because it's... Yes, please. You know, of course, they're intertwined. I had been working developing housing for homeless people with HIV for about 10 years, and prior to that, I had been a decorative artist, uh, working on my own freelance business. And when HIV happened, it just really seemed kind of insignificant to be painting wildly expensive pillows <laughs> while, while this meteor was, you know, crashing into my community. So I, I stopped doing that, started working, uh, volunteering at what was then the AIDS Resource Center, is now Bailey House. And I was sort of put in charge of developing something that was called uh, the Supportive Housing Apartment Program. And I did that for 10 years. And along the way, I went back to school and got an MSW. And, you know, once HIV happened, I think everyone's lives changed, but I know my life changed. So anyway, as I say, about 10 years in to working in housing, I was walking up 8th Avenue one night and I was looking up at the uh, their sort of second story mercantile on the old part of, of Lower 8th Avenue. And I imagined, I, I just sort of saw a window full of beautiful things that had been made by, in my mind then, uh, made by our tenants. Because I had been in so many of their apartments and I had seen all of this creativity, you know, people, you know, given an apartment and and all of the nightmare of what else they had been given in life with this illness and other things and what they were able to do with that. And so I imagined this store full of beautiful things. And sometime after that, I, I decided to really pursue that and create a place where people could sort of take an AIDS vacation and come and focus all of their attention on their creativity 
and on their future. Even though at that point, it was 1995, the drug cocktail had not yet been, you know, there were murmurings of the drug cocktail, but it was by no means a done deal. It was by no means successful. And so people were still dying. And I wanted a place where people could have hope because I think that hope is pretty essential to living. And in the face of this horrific illness that was so fear-inducing and stigma-producing and shaming, I wanted a place where everyone was in the same boat, number one, and where HIV wasn't the focus, creativity was the focus. So they could just come, we would teach. You know, it was, it was in some ways much the same as it is now, in other ways vastly different. We were in a licensed school, you know, licensed by New York State uh, Department of Education. It was me and a drawing table and uh, a small group of people saying, let's paint. And so all by way of answering your question, what is the mission? So the mission really was to offer hope uh, through this diversion of, of creativity that I find really, you know, when you, when you set out to make something, it sort of engages your whole mind. And so that's what I mean by taking a break from HIV. So. so the things that are made in the studio are primarily decorative arts, correct? It is very much decorative art focused. Um, and there, was, there are a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one is that I would be qualified to teach something like that, as are others at, at Alpha. I, as I say, I had been a decorative painter for a number of years, working with theater designers and fashion designers and interior designers. So I knew that sort of piece of the world, uh, the design world. And decorative arts is something that can be taught. You can teach someone to gild, and you can teach someone to install Venetian plaster. You can teach someone the color wheel. You can teach someone how to scale up a drawing from a small drawing to a large mural. You know, all of those things, aspects of decorative art, are able to be taught and learned. And the other thing is that they're able to be taught and learned by a lot of people. Something that's been really important in Alpha's development is inclusion. You know, we people, humans, have many, many ways of separating, um, you know, color and uh, religion and gender and gender preference and disability and ability. And uh, you name it, we'll find a way of separating. And creativity has a broad embrace. And so it doesn't rule anybody out. You don't need to be able to hear to gild a ceiling. You know, you don't need to be able to hear to learn to gild because if your eyes are working, you can follow steps. So decorative art was definitely the, the, the intent. Um, it was also the intent because I always wanted there to be, I wanted Alpha to be a hybrid, meaning I wanted us to be able to bring in a significant amount of income through the sale of our work. And I felt that was important on two levels. Financially, we would need that. And also, creating work that sells for a handsome price is satisfying. So all of it had to work so that the end result was everybody is better off. Um, so decorative arts uh, became the, uh, the, the method through which we were doing all of this. So do the artists get commission on the work that they do? How do you... What happens with the money that gets made off of the work? Good question. Um, the artists are on staff. 
So whether we get work or not, you know, like other people on staff, they get paid, they get health benefits, um, they get holidays, they get sick time. So the studios are structured as a nonprofit business. Alpha itself it has these two aspects, the school that's licensed by the New York State Department of Education and the studios that employ graduates of the school exclusively and produce really high-end work for New York's top interior designers and architects. How does the application process to the school work? Um, you can go online. That's what I would advise. Go online, look at, you know, see if it's something you want to do. Then fill out an application that's online. You can always call the school and get information that way. Best way to understand the school is to come and visit, like any school. Mm-hmm. Best way to come, understand is come and visit. And the other thing I would say in response to that is that we are no longer limiting application to people living with HIV. We define in, in our mission, it is HIV. We certainly don't want to abandon HIV. HIV, other disabilities and vulnerabilities. And we wanted to, to include vulnerabilities because, for instance, I'm 65. I don't consider that being a senior a a disability. I don't consider it right now a vulnerability either. But, you know, I don't consider being LGBTQ youth a disability. But it can often be a vulnerability. Mm -hmm. So um, we wanted to, again, make it as inclusive as possible. And when did you decide to do that? That happened roughly, let's say, I guess it was in 2014, we had a board meeting and determined that uh, as, as many organizations that had established themselves around the issues of HIV, we realized that it was changing and just as we had hoped it would change and that we had developed something in Alpha that could respond to trauma that might be able to help other people. So that's when that, that discussion then started during that board meeting in 2014. After you saw the space off of 8th, how did you make it a reality? So I thought about it a lot. Um, it's a good start. I, it's <laughs> always a good start. I um, bought a... A journal. It's always my start. And I took every thought I had and wrote in the journal. I talked to everyone who would listen. I wrote down everything they said. I asked them who else they could refer me to. And I just kept gathering ideas and um, sort of trying to flesh out this, this idea. There was a sort of what I refer to as an organizational grandparent, and that is the Omega Workshops, from which the name is derived. And the Omega Workshops were a group of artists who were part of the Bloomsbury Group in England at the turn of the last century, fine artists who turned their hands to decorative arts, and nothing was safe. Their plates were painted, their floors were painted, their tables were painted, their ceilings were painted, their fireplace surrounds were painted, everything was painted. And and I loved them. When I learned about them, I just fell in love with them. And so that was always in my mind, too, that we could work with anything. Because we had, you know, I, I knew we were going to start with nothing. So I had to believe that we could start with paper and, and paint. So anyway, I, I wrote everything down. I did drawings. I talked to people. And then I uh, started to talk to friends about forming a board. 
because if you're going to be a nonprofit, you have to have a board, you have to file with the Charities Bureau, you have to have legal status. So I, um, I assembled a group of friends, four to be specific, all of whom had been significantly affected by HIV and were close enough to the world of art to really help develop the ideas that I was I was having. And so we, we developed those ideas very much corporately, along with the mission statement and the, uh, the bylaws and all of that. And we would meet sort of monthly for about a year, I think, and uh, see how things had moved forward. And at some point, I remember them saying to me, okay, I think we're ready, go get a space. And I thought, oh my God, we have $15,000 in the bank. And so I went and looked for a space. And I knew I would be there all the time. I live in on 26th Street, so I couldn't look beyond walking distance. So I started and I found a space and we opened the doors in June of 1995, having gotten our, our uh, charity bureau status on actually Valentine's Day, which I've always seen as a good omen of that year, February 14th, 1995. And so I had a space, I took my drawing table over there and my brushes and anything else I had. And we started contacting other organizations and saying, you know, this is who we are. This is what we're trying to do. One of our board members was a decorative painter and he uh, was doing some of the teaching. So, you know, it, it started very, very, very small. In November of that year, I had what I called a gathering because it wasn't a party and it wasn't a meeting. So I called it a gathering and invited about eight people, some designers, some architects, some philanthropists, and uh, they all came. And uh, the next morning, the phone was ringing when I opened the door and one of them was uh, letting me know that he was sending me $25,000. And so it goes. That's the nature of starting a nonprofit. There are real ups and there are real downs. And you live in the same context that every business lives in, a financial world that is extremely volatile. And you adapt to it or you don't. Would you say that the investors that you got, would you call them angel investors? Were they expecting any return on the money that they... They were expecting social return. Okay. And hopefully they, they felt gratified in it. Uh, you know, we're 25 years old now, and, and there has been enormous support in those. The numbers of those people have certainly grown, but those initial, you know, our very first funders, board member, founding board member, wrote the mission statement, Ellen Levy, is she and her husband uh, are still giving, and as are many of those initial funders. So, you know, without them, we simply wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be here. And how did you go about reaching out to potential students? Did you reach out to your tenants? Tenants, that's a really good... Um, no, I was no longer working with that organization, but we did. There is something in New York called the Sort of Housing Network of New York. So we, we did contact all of those housing providers because with something like HIV... The first thing you have to do following diagnosis is get your medical care in order and then get your housing in order, which is often shaky in New York, and particularly so if you're trying to live with what was then a really life-threatening illness. And then you can start to think about other aspects of life. 
And so we were very successful in, in contacting housing organizations in order to make presentations there, tell them what we were trying to do, talk to the tenants, you know, who at that point certainly had nothing but time on their hands and time was not necessarily a friend. Um, so we got a lot of uptake on that. Um, a lot of people coming from housing programs. We went to doctor's offices. We went, you know, a- anywhere we could. Mm-hmm. And who started out as your clients and who are your clients now? I went to the group of interior designers whom I had worked with, you know, uh, as a freelancer. And only one of them responded, which tells you something about the way HIV was affecting everyone. Um, And one of those designers, and he's the one I'll name, Sam Batero, thought, wow, what a great idea. He's one of the ones that came to the gathering. And he uh, started ordering. And he was very smart. He ordered some lampshades for a, a major client of his who was had just purchased a, a townhouse on uh, East 71st Street. And we started out with lampshades, and they were very pleased with the lampshades. And you can't, you know, you can always replace a lampshade if it doesn't work. And uh, by the time it was all done, we were uh, glazing walls and uh, doing faux finishes and doing a lot of other kinds of work in the, in the house. And he remained an, an excellent client of Alpha's, designer client of Alpha's, as did his client. We, we did a ha- worked on a house for them in Fire Island many, many, many years later. So it grew over time. It grew over time. You know, as I say, we had paper and, and paint. That's what we had. We didn't have a lot of customers. We didn't have a school, strictly speaking. My background had been in, uh, as a decorative painter in sort of flat design, so we did a lot of flat design. And then a friend made an introduction to Mark Pollock, who, uh, who has an eponymous, uh, had an eponymous um, textile company. Uh, the introduction was made. I took all of, these, all of this flat design down to him, and he looked at it and said, this is very fresh. I can make a licensed collection out of this. And so we were the, the same organization, the same little struggling organization the day before that collection came out and the day after that collection came out, except in the eyes of many in the design world, because we could now lean on the credibility of Mark Pollock, who has enormous respect and the company itself, as well as the man in the design industry. So, you know, one by one, people would be engaged in the idea, because if you're not engaged in the idea, it's probably not gonna work. But one by one, designers became engaged in the idea. We had our first sort of um, exhibition, if you will, in, I believe, 1996. And because Verve, I think because Verve Clicquot gave us the champagne, we got a big audience, and so a lot of people came. And after it was over, uh, I was sitting with a friend who was in development, Arlene Swartz, and we were looking through the, the guest book, and I said, oh my God, Jamie Drake was here. And she picked up the phone and found his, his phone number and called, and I think he came over that day. If not, shortly thereafter, became a board member, is now chair of the board, and has been an extraordinary 
I can't describe what an extraordinary support he's been. And he sort of pledged to himself at that point to make something, put something of Alpha in every job that he does. It's amazing. He's amazing. Could you describe for me a couple of your favorite pieces, if you have them, that have been made over the years by students, or favorite patterns, anything? Hmm, sure. What immediately came to mind is we were asked to construct a sculpture that was to be a 16-foot tree root growing out of the sixth floor of sixth floor ceiling of uh, Takashimaya, the then department store, Japanese department store on Fifth Avenue. Um, that was a big favorite. Um, lots and lots of problem solvings in, involved there, as you might imagine. Lots of sourcing odd materials. It had to be taken up in a passenger elevator. So it had to be completely built at our studios, then dissembled and then reassembled on site. Uh, so that was a big project. What material Very, did you end up using? We wound up using um, sandblasted grape wood, which they harvest old vines from vineyards that have gone out of production, and it's this wonderful gnarly grape wood, and it was perfect because the, the, the architect, whose name is David Mann, wanted it to be, it was the children's department, and he wanted it to be a little bit creepy. And not scary, but a little bit creepy. And, and that would uh, suited it, the, that situation perfectly. And it was also strong enough to hold up to, you know, the amount of manipulation and um, sort of joining pieces together. It, it was a good, good uh, material to work with. to jump back and discuss exactly what the process was of being certified as a nonprofit organization. You described some of it, but okay. I wonder if you have any tips for someone who might be considering opening beginning a nonprofit. Tips. I've got lots of tips. I've been thinking a lot about this. The tips that I have are the main tip I think is that if it's your idea, you have to be willing to, to be the mother, father, sister, brother of that idea. Because if you aren't, others won't join you. You really, really have to be committed to bringing your idea forward into reality. That's, that's your job. So beyond that, there are lots of other tips. But, but you know, so, so taking that space and committing to uh, a rent and committing to funders that you are going to get reports back to them about what their money did and building a staff, uh, which means bringing in more money and finding more students and just building it bit by bit by bit is your job. And it's a big one. And you, I think of Alpha as, uh, as walking in the door at 245 West 29th Street, walking in the door that morning with about 50 hats on my head. Job was to get some of them off of my head. And, that, and the, the, you just keep redistributing the hats as you can and as money allows. So we opened that, that first space and it went, you know, in fits and starts, it went well. And then we decided we needed a little, a little more space. And the person across the hall 
who was an artist, was leaving her studio. And so we took that space. And then a space opened up one floor down. And we needed another space. And so we took that space. And then a much larger space opened on the third floor. And we took that. And then a space on the 14th floor opened and we took that. And then the landlord came to us and said, don't you want to consolidate? I've got a full floor on, on the second floor. And so, you know, after, after some negotiations, we did indeed move to the second floor. A, an architectural firm, Cofinier Coup, uh, offered to do the architectural uh, work pro bono. And we, weren't, we were moving out of more space in more square footage in all those various smaller spaces than the second floor provided. So the managing agent offered us a storefront, which is how we came to know Manhattan Sideways. And so we have, you know, we would, we would ordinarily not have a storefront, but it, it, it would have been a deal breaker if we didn't have a little more space. Mm-hmm. And the landlord really wanted that second space, second floor space to be used and had been empty for a couple of years. And so we got the storefront. And that's been like a miracle. It's not that we operated as a storefront. We operated as a gallery. We operated, we have portfolio reviews there uh, because it's a nice setting for it for the students to have portfolio reviews in a gallery space. We had uh, another firm, uh, a contractor, Best in Company, volunteer to come and turn that space into a gallery space. So we got great walls and we got great lighting and beautiful, you know, a beautifully outfitted gallery. So, so we use it in many ways. We use it to show new product when, when we have editors coming in to show new product. So the storefront has served us well. We put signage in the storefront. When we're, we started a new program recently called My Creative Future, working with um, queer young people. And the, so we, we hold some of those sessions in that space. And that always attracts sort of, you know, interest. And we've gotten a few people who have come to Alpha because they have sort of walked past the space when something interesting is going on. Um, We always have signage there that says, you know, what's coming up next at Alpha. So, you know, though we never expected to have a storefront, we do have a storefront and uh, and it serves us in many, many ways. Mm -hmm. So. So you have mentioned a couple of different opportunities that have come up sort of pro bono, people have wanted to support you, but can you talk about exactly how your relationships contributed to to those opportunities? Great, great, great question. Um, my mantra is the relationship is everything, you know, absolutely everything. Um, and as I say, you know, at the beginning, I talked to anybody I who would listen I um, and ask them for other people to talk to. Um, and there was a lot of, you know, people were great. People were nice. People wanted to talk. People were interested in hearing and interested in sharing their own experience. And in some way, their, whatever helped them form their model or their paradigm would inform Alpha in various ways. But then over time, you know, I, I realized that there would need to be not only outreach to potential funders, but really to a major part of the design community. And there were uh, a number of people 
who really took that seriously. One person comes to mind, Janice Langrell, and she came to our very first Alpha Awards, which we had in 2000. And she was so affected by Alpha that she kind of became an ambassador. And she was um, working in the industry, marketing for various companies, well-known, well-liked. And so she just introduced me to lots of people. And when, when there was an industry event, she took me. And so, you know, you have to be willing to go but and spend all those evenings, because it's all evening work, but, but the, there are people who are so willing to help. It's remarkable. It's just remarkable. And you find that, you know, so at that event, you'd find five more people to follow up with or uh, another person that eventually becomes an ambassador and they're, they're introducing you to more people. So I guess the person in my role has to be an evangelist and, the per- and you have to find a bunch of, of uh, ambassadors or disciples. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Talk to me about the school. Um, sure. The school is called the Alpha Workshop Studio School. And um, there are two programs. There's an introductory program and an advanced program. Um, the introductory is 10 weeks long. The advanced is 26 weeks long. So by the time someone completes, they've been there for about nine months. It's three days a week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, seven hours a day. So it's a really intensive program. It requires a high degree of commitment. We start with color theory. Everybody paints a color wheel. Everybody does a grayscale. Everybody learns about how you glaze out a color and make it transparent or translucent, how you apply it to a wall in various finishes. They learn transfer technique. They learn gilding. They learn stenciling. They learn stamping. They learn faux wood. They learn faux ivory. Um, So they learn a, a sort of basic understanding of materials and how some of those uh, materials can be applied uh, in decorative arts. And they learn about process. Um, We're very strong on process that once you understand materials and process, many of our designs, our wallpaper designs particularly, are very process-oriented. And so once you understand that, then you can, it's like any other true understanding, then you can riff on it, then you can play with it. And that's when you can, uh, once you learn the basics, you can have more fun with it. Um, but, but we very much base everything on um, skills building that build one upon the other. So, you know, there after, after the uh, completion of the 10 weeks, there's a portfolio review. Then people go on to advanced training. There's a portfolio review at the end of that. And then we try to work with people to help them develop, if not their final career, that's a big jump, but next steps toward a desired career. You know, if you want to be a freelancer, there are things that you can be taught in terms of how to approach that. If you want to work in an existing painting studio, there are ways of preparing for that. Um, what I always say to students is, my business was based on knowing how to do one thing well. I painted fabric, I understood it, I understood the materiality under, of it, and I understood what I painted well, um, and that was basically nature. And that was all it took. 
I built my career or that, that piece of my career around that. So you don't need to know everything well. You need to know and like one thing well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and then in, in the studios, the, um, you know, we have a number of, of sort of areas of, of product. So we have two studios. One is called the Wallpaper Studio, for obvious reasons. We make wallpaper. And the other is called Fabrications and Finishes because the, the artisans working in that studio might one day be installing that tree root growing out of the ceiling of Takashimaya or gilding a ceiling for the governor of Indiana or painting a historically accurate floor, faux marble floor for Gracie Mansion or, as they are right now, redoing a big event space midtown or installing a Venetian plaster. So that... that there's a, a wide diversity of, of uh, capabilities that exist within that studio. There's a wide capability, you know, the diversity of capabilities in the wallpaper studio as well, but their product is really wallpaper, and they produce some of the most beautiful wallpaper you'll, you'll ever see. It really, I don't do it, I can say it. It's just ravishing, beautiful. So, you know, depending on which studio you're in, that shapes your day. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I'd like to hear about a day in the life of a student at Alpha. A day in the life of a student at Alpha. Well, as I said earlier, our student body is extremely diverse. Inclusive is the, is the reference. But a good student, it's just like a good student anywhere, arrives at before class starts, class starts at 9.30, and is, is uh, ready at their desks, ready to, ready to go to work on that week's lessons. So each week is an individual lesson. They have three days to complete the, the requirements of that particular technique. They, from 9.30 until I think it's 11, then there's a break, and then uh, to, they work until lunch at one, and then there's a break, and then, so it's, it's much like any school, except you're not going from classroom to classroom. You are focusing on one technique per week, hopefully getting to at least a satisfactory mastery of that technique Mm -hmm. by the end of those three days. Mm -hmm. That would say to you, I think what a student is, is, is looking for in that is, is this a future for me? Does this, does this feel good? Does this make me feel good? Does this, is my body up to this? What part of this course do I really love? What part feels like torture? Um, you know, it's normal. And at the end of the day, which is at five o'clock, or rather at 4.30, they start to clean up and leave at five o'clock. And, you know, I would say that we have remarkably good attendance. Uh, and I attribute that to people really feeling like they're moving forward and enjoying their time there, not only what they're doing, but the community they're building. It's a big, big element at Alpha. Classes of students move through the two programs together, and it's a sort of, it's a celebration when they leave, but there is sadness involved in this structure falling away and leaving room, hopefully, for new structure. Could you tell me about the community and the relationships between the students? Sure. It's really, really, really marvelously diverse. Um, as, as I said, inclusion is important, and I think that it's something we all take great pride in. I remember 
being in one intro class and going around the room and, and meeting all of the, the students. And I think there were eight countries among 10 people. Wow. And there were one, two, three, four continents. So that was thrilling. That was really thrilling. There's just an amazing diversity. That's a rich experience, not only for us as, as instructors, but for those students. Mm-hmm. It's very, very rich. Do the students tend to get close to each other? Creativity is a pretty intimate process. It's, does that bring them closer? It is an intimate process. It's a vulnerable process. Yes. And they uh, generally help each other and encourage each other. I teach one class in the advanced program that's called the Hope Poster, and it's based on Shepard Fairey's um, poster of Barack Obama. And uh, so we start with a photograph, and then they, they do a realistic charcoal self-portrait, and then they do a color separation in grayscale and transfer that to a larger piece of paper and, um, and paint it. And there is, certainly among some, uh, a, a certain level of, of um, anxiety going into this, and so there, the vulnerability is high. And by the end, invariably, when we put all those portraits up on the wall, they applaud one another as, as each one talks about the process and proudly talks about their portrait. There's tremendous support that has been there all along, but now there's celebration. So, so there's, there's a lot of support. And generally, classes will say, well, what are we doing for Thanksgiving? And what are we doing for the holidays? And you know, so they will find ways of expanding their time together and sharing their, their lives outside of Alpha. Mm-hmm. You know, it goes back to the very beginning that HIV is neither a secret nor a focus, but it was a unifying factor. And I think everybody who comes to Alpha feels this bond that there is some vulnerability as well as strength that is shared and pulls them together, so. I also was wondering, this is, I'm sure, a difficult question, but because of the communities that you work with, I wonder if you have structures in place at the, within the workshop community to handle loss within the community, or if that's something that you have experienced a lot of. Um, that's really interesting. It, it, it certainly reminds me of, of the earlier days of Alpha because yeah. loss was very present. Loss was very, very present. And uh, the, the discussion, you know, Alpha was kind of, a, a, at that point, a naturally occurring support group because everybody was trying different parts of this cocktail and feeling like that it was helping or feeling like it was killing them. And, and that discussion was, was really very present then. And we lost a few people early on before we really even got to know them very well, or people would show up and then not show up. That's, that was the flow of, of the, the, the time then. After a few years, when we did know each other and were a much tighter community, uh, we were still experiencing loss, and that was extremely painful because there was a lot of love there. And I remember we, we lost one man uh, and his family asked if they could have their, his memorial at Alpha. And we said, of course, yes, that would be wonderful and it would give us all a, a, 
an opportunity to mourn him and celebrate him. But I think part of the reason that they wanted that was that they lived in a community where that really wasn't possible. There, they lived in a community that was shrouded in shame, not only to be gay, but, but to be dying, uh, to have died of HIV. They couldn't face that. So, so that, that, that's happened a number of times. And, you know, personal crises happen for all of us. And Alpha is um, a wonderful community, both in its student body as well as its uh, staff members, in understanding that and, and helping people. Thank you for speaking to me about that. Sure. Yeah. Are there are there ways that you think that Alpha has helped more broadly to destigmatize HIV? Yeah, I, I think it goes back to the idea of inclusion and recognizing all of our similarities other than our differences. And really, you know, it's just what can I say? It's a it, I think artists that's a big generalization, but are enriched by diversity. I think we all are enriched by diversity. It's what I've craved all my life. It, you know, it, it, uh, we talked about the separation and the way that, that, that society uh, and we all find of separating ourselves. And what I always resented and continue to resent and continues to fuel my painting is, is I feel like I've been forced into a segregated world. And, and I really resent that. Um, and Alpha has given me the opportunity to participate in a far less segregated world, far less. And that's an amazing gift. Mm-hmm. It's just an amazing gift. Do you think that the people outside of Alpha who come into contact with Alpha or choose to work with your artists tend to question their own biases through that process? I don't know if they question their biases. I, I, I would have no way of knowing that. Mm-hmm. But, but I can say that when people come through Alpha, whether that's a potential funder or a designer or an architect or uh, a designer's client, um, they are, I hate to use the word infected, but I'm going to use it anyway, infected by this um, energy of not only the creativity, but the, the magic of the particular group of people who are there. It's just, you know, you don't see it every day. You don't see this kind of work set up. You don't see this, this group of people um, making gorgeous things. You know, it's, it's highly unusual. What can I say? And, um, and I think that there's, uh, it's kind of magnetic. I just want to clarify, there are essentially two programs that you have, correct? There's the student program, the school, and then after someone has gone through the school, then they have the option to be on staff. Is that correct? Or can you clarify? I can certainly clarify that. It's sort of correct. It's true that we have these two aspects, the school and the studios. The studios are largely dependent on being self-funding. So this is what I mean by a hybrid. This is really a nonprofit hybrid. And so the, the artisans who work in the studios, the studios need to, to, be, to be bringing in enough work, enough income for a new position to open up for one of those graduates. So if the wallpaper department is selling 
$100,000 a year, just like any business, they can employ X number of, of staff. If they're selling $200,000 a year, they can employ that many more. So many graduates of the school express a desire to work in the studios. We wish we could hire more. We wish we could hire pretty much all of them, but that's not a reasonable business model, mm-hmm. really, for for the growth of that that piece of alpha. I wish it were. Mm-hmm. So we, we sometimes uh, intern people into the studios so that it gives them practical, day-to-day, real life. This is for a this is for a, a customer. It has to be perfect experience. We work with other creative businesses to place interns there. That has the potential to turn into a job or or at least it it helps fill in some of the context of the world of design. So we work with people uh, in any way we can to help them with with next steps. You know, if you are up for the challenge of being a freelancer, I loved freelance. If you're up for that challenge and can not only do the work, but go out and, sorry, but glad hand and and sort of get the work, you know, and meet people and show your portfolio and put yourself out there, that can be a very rewarding life. So, you know, they, they have the, many of them have the technical skills to do that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mentoring them into the possibility of developing their own business is very much a possibility. Mm-hmm. Do you know what percentage of your students end up in the studio after finishing the program? Everybody in the stu- that works in the studios is a graduate of the school, and that is absolutely the case now. But we don't have a lot of turnover. So, so when it comes to percentage, it's at what point, at what period? You know, a long, way back, fifteen years ago, it was probably it would have been a high percentage, but they're still there. So I can't give you a percentage. I can say that we've hired over the years, maybe about 150, 160 of our graduates to work in the studios. And how many students go through the program every year? About forty. Do the students who go through the program pay money for the program? No. It's an entirely scholarship program. Some of that money comes from state support through the Department of Education, and some comes from private fundraising. I referenced Jamie uh, Drake earlier. We have something called the Jamie Drake Scholarship Fund. All of that money goes exclusively into uh, supporting students through the program. Amazing. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. And then, then, like you said, all the staff has all of the benefits of a typical worker and then maybe even more. Yeah. 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 Equally amazing. Yeah. yeah. They, you know, when you graduate and if, if you're hired into the, the staff, if you're full-time staff, then it's all the benefits of a full-time staff. All the benefits are, are, are there. Yeah. That does not extend to uh, part-time uh, workers for a number of reasons. But yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to share with me right now that you don't think we've talked about yet? You know, the, the uh, tagline that one of our board members, uh, Tony Manning, came up with years ago is um, uh, creating beauty, changing lives. And um, I really love that uh, because it's really true. The work is just gorgeous. And, the, and lives really do change. And we don't change the lives 
they change their lives. But we facilitate that by providing encouragement and a place for it to happen and the supplies and the instruction and the context of, of a life in design and art. But the change is something that they take on. And that's really gratifying and often thrilling to watch. So. It shows huge motivation to even go through the process of applying and asking, you know, to be a part of the program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, and a, a desire to really say, I've never given this to myself. You know, I've never been encouraged to recognize the creative part of who I am. And now I have the opportunity to do that and I'm going to go for it. Mm-hmm. And that's great. So I'm wondering what it has meant to you to be in New York specifically. Who? Um, what it has meant, that's a big question. It is a big question. That's a big question. Um, I came to New York uh, in 1976 on Tall Ships Day, having been born and raised in very rural western Pennsylvania. I uh, lived with my three-year-old sister and my mom and dad in a little tiny house across a footbridge from the log cabin where my father was born and raised and where his father had been born and raised. So... Coming to New York might not seem like the most obvious choice. Maybe it does seem like the most obvious choice. But um, part of my my early years was also that I was raised in a in a Pentecostal family, and I, um, as a, as a little kid in Sunday school, would sing this song: uh, "Jesus loves all the little children, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in His sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world." And I just prayed that that was so, because I knew that I was a little gay boy and that that wasn't gonna fly uh, in that church or in rural Western Pennsylvania, it felt. And so there was an element of escape that brought me to New York. And uh, New York has been good to me. And New York, you know, it, it it would be hard, it would be really hard, to, um, to start something like Alpha in, in a rural setting. But I think you can take lots of the, the basic tenets of how you start something, how you have an idea and bring that idea into, into reality and apply it pretty much anywhere. I applied it in New York because in New York became my new home. And, and in the 70s, New York was just so full of potential. You know, New York was broke, and so was I, and and so we got along well, and and I had a wonderful time. So, how have you seen New York change over the last yikes decades? Um, well, New York feels to me like New York has become increasingly a place for uh, the rich. It feels like much of what I came to know as New York is no longer around. Doesn't mean it's all bad by any means. Um, development goes on and, and what's happening on the High Line is really extraordinary. It's extraordinary and beautiful and I love being able to you know, get on at 26th Street and get off at the Whitney. So, so there are a good, good and bad, good and bad, like anywhere. Mm-hmm. Good and bad like anywhere. Do you think if somebody had a similar idea to yours. You know, if someone is listening and they're not living in New York right now, is New York the place for them to come and start 
something not necessarily that. not necessarily you know it, um, I have an idea I have lots of ideas <laughs> and some of them I, I have a uh, my husband and I have a little place in the Catskills and you know they can really use economic development in the mm-hmm. Catskills oh boy and and I have lots of ideas mm-hmm. about working up there and and so I can sort of create um, this world that may look cute I hate that word but it's not meant to be cute. It's meant to be um, a response to living in a segregated world. So, you know, I, I, I paint all the time. I don't have a, you know, I'm not with a gallery. Um, I've uh, not done a great deal of showing. Um, I want to in the next stage of my life, but, you know, Alpha has really taken a priority in, ta- in terms of uh, where my responsibility is. Um, and now I will have some time to uh, put that response, to focus more, more of that on myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking forward to that. Mm-hmm. So. so for right now, your works are with you? With me. Mm-hmm. Flat files mm-hmm. in my studio. Mm-hmm. Personally, um, where do you see yourself in the next years? Okay, so um, I started Alpha 25 years ago. And so succession planning becomes important at some point. And for me, that was really probably 10 years or more ago. Um, When the board made the determination to, um, when we all made the determination to expand our reach into different communities of people, um, we also started talking about what was going to happen next with Alpha in terms of its leadership, because eventually I would be stepping back. Um, so that that discussion continued, that process continued, and then in twenty August of twenty seventeen, we were introduced through an, through another board member to some. Uh, people at the uh, the Jewish Board, which many know as the Jewish Board of Family and Children's Services. And it's the largest social service agency in New York City. And the, our board member brought some of their um, staff down to just see if there was any interest. And it was immediate on both sides. It was really immediate. And though we had internally and, and with the board talked about the idea of joining with another organization that might be a way of succession planning. We had only approached similar organizations, organizations similar to Alpha. That seemed to make sense. It didn't work, though. What worked was finding someone who was completely complementary. We shared no capabilities, so we could only complement. And so that continued, due diligence on that continued between organizations for the better part of 15 months, 16 months. And in November, that was closed, and we are now, um, meaning the, the transaction was closed, and we Alpha became a wholly owned subsidiary of the Jewish Board, which means that we have the same mission, we have the same board, we have the same uh, purpose. We just have a larger presence, more support. We have now, we can, we have shared um, resources in terms of development and finance and marketing. So it it supports us in a period of transition that is often the most vulnerable point in a, in a in an 
organization's history, that of losing its founding director. And so there's a search on now for a new director. I am remaining as a consultant until that transaction takes place. I'm looking forward to having fresh eyes and fresh energy uh, come into Alpha. And I'm looking forward to developing this pro- this uh, program, uh, uh, the curriculum, and doing a lot more painting and understanding my process and life as an artist. Thanks so much for listening. My name is Ellie Cody, and this has been Manhattan Sideways. If you'd like to learn more about this particular business, or to discover and read about thousands of other fascinating small businesses on the side streets of Manhattan, please visit our website, sideways.nyc, and of course, follow us on Instagram and Facebook, at NYSideways.